Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. About this time of year, every year, I start thinking about New Year's resolutions. And I know that some people aren't into that, but I am, because it seems that over the course of my lifetime, I've never become a better person by accident. You know what I mean? It's not like I woke up one morning, wow, amazing new me. It's, it's never just happened that way. The, the, the little victories that I've gained in my life and the big ones have usually come because I've said something needs to change and I am going to change it with God's help. And so you identify this thing that needs to be changed and you set the goal of being changed and then you pursue it. And so uh, there's just this convention in our culture of, of New Year's resolutions and that always seems, you know, fresh start, New Year, always seems like a great time to try some new things. So each year about this time, I'm, I'm penciling some things down. I'm talking with my family about them and my friends and, and I'm at it again this year. Uh, a couple of years ago, I uh, was looking at my life and saw that um, something that had once been important to me no longer seemed to be very important and wasn't functioning in my life. I've always thought that it was important to read because if, if I read the, the minds of other devout Christians, if I read the thinking of some people who followed Jesus through great hardship and suffering, that uh, that stuff would kind of sort of rub off on me and that I could grow simply by learning the stories of other people. Well, reading um, certainly isn't, my reading certainly isn't confined to the stories or the thoughts of, of Christians. I, I try to read widely so that I can understand this world in which we live, but I had let go of pretty much all of it, and here's why. Because I was undisciplined in my reading, and I would always have five or six books going at a time. Everybody's always giving me books, and I'm seeing things that I think would be great, and I'd get three chapters in, and there was just this growing mound in my office and another one on the, on the end table at home. And about halfway through the year uh, 2011, shortly before I became your pastor, I realized um, I'm not reading anymore. I have tons of books that bookmarks in it, but I'm not reading because it just felt overwhelming to me to try to finish all of these. And so I purposed that for the year 2012, I would start reading one book at a time. I would read one book and not start any others until I had finished that one. And this was completely foreign to me, but I knew that it would, it would work. And so wrote down the New Year's resolution, told my family and a few friends, and starting in January of 2012, I was reading one book at a time to the exclusion of all others. And it worked. It was fantastic. I was just pouring through book after book after book, new ideas coming my way, things that were stretching me and growing me. It was fantastic. And then uh, kind of, you know, with my sails full of wind, I decided that I was going to tackle one of the English literature classics that I'd never before read. So I pulled out Charles Dickens' um, Great Expectations. And that's about where the progress stopped. I, uh, I got Dickens. I started reading and I realized, oh yeah, he's not a 21st century American. You've got to learn the, the cadence of Dickensian English. It's a little different. And, uh, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to buy the dumped down for cliff copy. You know what I mean? So, so I was reading Dickens, uh, Great Expectations. And after a while, I kind of got into the rhythm of it. I'm like, okay. So I'm reading along and it's a long book and I stalled out in the middle somewhere as Dickens was going on and on and on about all these tired details about this boy who was living the high life and, Oh, whining about not getting the girl of his dreams, and uh, enough. And so I put it down. But I had made a New Year's resolution that I wasn't going to start another book. So I'd look at that one and decide to watch television. <laughs> yeah, right? You know how it goes. 
And um, I was having a pretty rough time with, with Dickens and, and great expectations. But, uh, but as, I, as I came back to it, I realized, okay, this is stretching me. It's growing me. The resolution was working for me. And so I'm still doing that to, to this day. It's, a, it's your number two, and it's working for me. If you're unfamiliar with Dickens' story, Great Expectations, uh, it amounts to this. There's this young boy called Pitt. He's an orphan who's being raised in very humble circumstances by a very mean-spirited older sister and her somewhat dim bulb of a husband who is a blacksmith. The boy Pip is not at all satisfied with his current life's circumstances, nor with where this seems to be leading him, the future that is likely to be his. So he begins to daydream about a a real life, about the life that he hopes to lead one day, and then he decides he's going to start actually chasing that dream. In real life, it seems that he's destined to become a blacksmith, but not for a very long while because his brother-in-law is the blacksmith in town and he can only be his apprentice until Joe is done. That idea was very disappointing to Pip. He, he had dreams. He had dreams of becoming a gentleman, an educated, sophisticated, well-dressed, wealthy man who would just fit quite nicely into London's high society. And with all that would probably come the privilege of marrying a beautiful and proper lady. In the language of contemporary America, a trophy wife, if you'll excuse the phrase. And he had her already picked out because Pip had great expectations. But the dream was not happening. Uh, He did meet a wealthy woman who hired him and seemed to have high designs for him and his future, but she ended up sentencing him to the very blacksmith apprenticeship that he dreaded. Then one day, a message came from an anonymous benefactor who said that he was going to sponsor that young man's dream. He was going to move to the city. He was going to get an education. He was going to be introduced into a lucrative business and have the life that he had always fantasized about. Pip quickly agreed and he left behind his family and all that life which he thought was beneath a guy of his ability who had such great expectations. High hopes and great expectations were becoming a reality. In a strange turn, however, the story once again goes dark. Pip, one day as he's going about the business of high living and and gaining his education, meets his benefactor. The guy who's sponsoring him, the guy who's giving him the scholarship, and as it turns out, his benefactor is an escaped convict who had preyed upon the young boy's fear in a chance meeting years and years ago when he was just a boy. Somehow that criminal had escaped England, managed to go to Australia, there got involved in some business that made him very wealthy, and while he knew that he himself, a convict lowlife, was never going to amount to a gentleman, he could help somebody become one, and so he sponsored that boy. But one day he showed up in Pip's life. Upon his return to England, he he looked up that young gentleman in the making and he used the financial leverage and the emotional leverage of his sponsorship not only to become a part of Pip's life, but to actually move into his apartment with him. Then the beautiful girl of his dreams, bad going to worse, decided that she was going to marry someone else. Pip, as he looked at his life, realized that it had all fallen apart. His great expectations had been dashed by a little bit of reality therapy, see? 
and he was left only with some grand disappointments. Can you identify with that story? Have you uh, had your own set of great expectations? Have they worked out for you? And when you look at your life, do you feel like maybe you've been left with something that feels very much like settling? Like your life's less than. Like maybe you have some grand disappointments too. Now, as we head toward Christmas... There's these few weeks between here and there. Pastor Aaron got us started uh, with Advent season last week because it was sick. Aaron, thank you for just stepping up and doing what I needed you to do. Really appreciate that. But he got us started in this season that the church calls Advent that we really don't quite know what to do with except, well, we get beautiful wreaths and we light beautiful candles and we don't know why there's three purple and there's one pink. And I kid you not, nobody knows why that is. You can, you can look it up and you'll get 18 different answers. We all know the white one is the Christ candle and that's supposed to be lit on Christmas Eve. By the way, Christmas Eve here at First Naz, the sanctuary is going to be open from 5 to 7 p.m. It will just be candlelight communion for you as an individual or family or, or friend groups, however you want to do this. But uh, I'll be here from 5 to 7 on Christmas Eve and just ask you, there'll be some music playing and it'll be lit softly in some candles and you can come and receive communion. That evening, you'll see that in this Advent wreath, the, the white candle, the Christ candle will be lit. But we don't know really what to do with Advent in the church, and so we usually just get a wreath and some candles and maybe put some things on a bulletin board somewhere. But Advent really is all about great expectations and grand disappointments. Historically, Advent is based on an unfulfilled expectation, sort of. But, but the purpose of this season, as we celebrate it now, uh, is not to remind us that our dreams have been dashed, but to build in the followers of Jesus a very real and realistic hope for our future. I'm going to explain that in a moment, but before I do, I want to ask a question that really is just a call to, to gut-level honesty. Are you disappointed with God? and with the life he's given you? If so, I think it is very important for you to be honest with yourself about that and to be honest with God about that too. Probably feels like a scary thing, huh? To maybe admit to God, I'm really disappointed in you. But um, I guess let me put it this way this morning. He's big boy. He can handle it, okay? He really can He wants nothing more than for you to be just gut-level honest with Him. Here's the question this morning. Please don't dodge it. Are you disappointed with God? Are you disappointed with the life that He's given you? The observance of Advent, this season in the Christian year, um, has some Jewish roots to it. This world of ours has really been a mess, a big mess, for a very long time. In fact, every single generation of human beings has been very dissatisfied with life on this planet. The Jewish prophets who wrote so many of the books of our Bible's Old Testament describe both God's dissatisfaction and man's dissatisfaction with the condition of our world. But those same writers also revealed a mystery 
a divine plan that God was going to send someone into this world who would be completely equipped to deal with its people and its brokenness and would begin to fix it. That is the one great expectation that the people of Israel held on to historically. They latched onto that idea as their one great hope. But as their world, as their country, as their culture unraveled more and more, time and time again, there grew a disappointment among them. They called the promised one Messiah. It kind of loosely translates idea-wise into our language as the grand fixer, the guy who's finally going to start making the world right. But the problem is that the fulfillment of the promise took too long. In fact, it took centuries and centuries and centuries. The great expectation ended up becoming a grand disappointment to generation after generation of people who said, we put our faith in God. And when the grand fixer eventually did come, he did not at all measure up to the people's expectations. Because of the way that history had gone, not just the nation, the, the history of their nation, but the history of all of that part of the world at the time, because of the way that it had happened, the people of Israel started, started believing that the answer, the Messiah, the grand fixer, would have to be a military, political kind of answer. Somebody with some real muscle, somebody with some real might, somebody with some real authority who could gain a a, a massive following and who could throw off the chains of Roman oppression. Roman occupation had shaped their expectations. Hey, this isn't in the notes. Get this. You should be careful of letting the hard things and the disappointments in your life shape your expectations. Don't fall for that. This is not the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That your disappointments from the past shape your expectations of the future. They were hoping, those folks, that when Messiah came, he'd beat back the Romans and and he'd bring political and cultural freedom to their nation once again. If you know the Bible's Old Testament story, then there's a good chance you know much of its New Testament story as well. So you might know that the Bible's New Testament clearly presents Jesus as God's promised grand fixer or Messiah. But the problem is that Jesus didn't meet the people's great expectations for that job. Jesus wasn't a military guy. Quite the opposite. He said things like, love your enemies. Don't resist them. Turn the other cheek. Carry their backpack for them. Pray for the people who persecute you. Wasn't a political guy. He said, my kingdom isn't of this world. You people do whatever you want with elected offices. He wasn't wealthy. In fact, he said, if you're rich, you're probably not going to get into heaven. It's really hard. Because you can't serve both God and money. And if you love money, it's probably because there's evil in your heart. You should, I don't know, try giving everything you have to the poor. Didn't come from a prominent, influential family. And unlike a lot of American Christians, he wasn't even that loyal to his family. He said, my real family is made up of the people who do what God wants. And my blood kin, they don't do that very often. So, no thank you, I don't want to see them. 
And with that, he refused to see his actual mother and his actual brothers who traveled many days to come and see him. He didn't even have a very good personal reputation. A lot of people mistakenly thought that he was a drunk and sexually promiscuous because he always hung out with people who were. The people of Israel had great expectations. And as a Messiah, Jesus was just one big disappointment. Made a few sandwiches. Rumor has it that he healed some people. But that's never what they were looking for in a grand fixer. Jesus was a disappointment because he had a completely different purpose in mind. Different purpose than the people had expected. The perspective of history allows you and I to look back on the prophet's messages and to see that the grand fixer's purpose never really was meant to be military or political. Instead, if you read that Old Testament, you will see that Messiah was supposed to come to restore righteousness because there is no freedom without righteousness. God cannot bless a nation that abandons righteousness. In other words, Messiah would come to fix the mess in human hearts so that we then in turn would begin to fix the world around us. And when we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, we see that he fit that bill perfectly. That's the kind of Messiah that we were supposed to expect, and that's the kind that Jesus is. If Israel had been able to let go of their not-so-great expectations and allowed Jesus to fulfill his expectations among them, then they could have experienced a whole new golden age, regardless of what happened and politically around them, but so sure that they knew better than God the real definition of good, they refused to let go of their dream and to take hold of God's. 35 years later, their nation lay in ruins. The Romans had killed almost all of them. Its survivors scattered to the four winds, all because of their stubborn refusal to accept the good that God wanted to bring to them. In Dickens' book, Great Expectations, there's the, a build-up of Pip's dream taking shape. And then there's this, just this letdown of his dream being dashed. His dream job didn't happen. Dream girl married somebody else. Dream house never could afford it. His fortune racked up a bunch of debt. His great expectations gave way to grand disappointments and and the temptation to become a bitter, stunted man. It was all right there, a temptation for him. But in the end, it seems that Pip was able to discover an altogether different kind of good. And it was a more mature kind of good. The relationships with his family that had been sacrificed on the altar of his arrogance and greed were eventually reconciled. He found peace in a humble clerk's job earning just enough to pay his bills and pay his debts. He got a second chance at love, too. But get this, because it's very important. In order to be able to receive a life that was genuinely good, Pip had to let go of his immature, selfish ambition. His great expectations. I think that most people, by the time you're right about my age, uh would agree that just having some peace with your family and some adequate shelter and enough money to pay your bills and mature love with your spouse sounds like a dream. Sounds like one fantastic life. It's a 
mature expectation. The passage that I read, that I need to read, I don't know where to put it. It's Romans. It's Romans chapter 8. Verses 28 through 39. I read it to you while we were singing. I don't know how much of it you caught because of that. I want to read it to you again. If you have Bibles, you can look it up or it'll appear on the screen behind me as well. Listen to what this passage has to say. I'll be reading to you from the New Living Translation. It says this. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he then gave them his glory. Well, we should play with that sometime. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God's for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen as his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, here's somebody whining in the past, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We're being slaughtered like sheep. Paul says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. Loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell itself can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. This is the word of the Lord. The passage that I read reveals to us some things that we can realistically expect from God. 2,000 years ago, the people of Israel sat with their own expectations, unwilling to surrender them. They stiff-armed God when he came to bring them something that was genuinely good that he had promised to them. And their stubborn, bitter refusal cost them dearly. So the birth and life of their Messiah ended up making no sense and no difference for them. I don't know what your grand expectations are. I don't know what grand disappointments have crowded into their place in your life, but I've studied the scriptures again and I came across a list of things that God promises to his people that you can latch onto and expect that he will deliver to you. They are genuinely good. 
These are the things God wants for you if you will want them for you. The first one is this. Romans 8.28 says that you can expect God to take everything and work it together for your good. It means that, that God takes the good days when you don't think you need His help and the bad days when you're quite certain He's forgotten you or missed one that got, got by Him. And then all of those gray every days in between, he takes all of those things and he says, I've got a plan and I can take the good and I can take the bad and I can take the in-between and I can work them into something that is magnificent and, and, and exquisitely good for you. And in the process, some of that will splash over into the lives of the people around you. Tell you what, I'll take them and, and pull them into your life and we'll use them and their circumstances and their hard days and their dreams and we'll weave all those together for your good too. There'll be some things that are difficult in your life and they will be part of the recipe for the good in somebody else's life. He promised he would take all things and work them together for your good. What's the thing that you're experiencing right now that you don't want anything to do with? The Scriptures say, all things He will work together for our good. And all means, yeah. Romans 8 says that He will work those things for your good. You can count on it. Expect it. Secondly, the passage tells us that you can expect God to make you like Jesus at the level of your character. That's what Romans 8.29 said. God knew who would end up being his people. He lets us choose, but you know, he, he knows these things. He, he knew ahead of time. He didn't predetermine. He didn't pick you for heaven and somebody else for hell. He knew who would choose him. And all who choose him, however, he determined would have a destiny that under his work, we would become like Jesus, so much so that other people confuse us with him. It wasn't, listen, listen, God's plan wasn't, hey, let's do this. Let's make lots of forgiveness, but no changes. And then people can put bumper stickers on their car that say Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And that's how we'll know who the Christians are. They're the people who sin a lot, but have bumper stickers. Not the plan. The plan was that we would surrender to him. We'd bring our great expectations to him and say, God, I want yours instead because I trust that your heart's better than mine. I'll let you take all the junk and the exquisitely good stuff and the eh, gray every day from my life and work it together for my good. And in the process, use it to shape me so much so that in my character, I become like you, that I start to think the way that you do, that my heart starts longing for the things that your heart longs for. And I become obedient in the way that I live according to your word so that when people look at me, they go, I don't know what Jesus was like 2,000 years ago, but I bet he looks like Ray when he's here today. That was the plan. That he would be so transformative in your life that people confuse you with him. Listen, no condemnation today. This isn't Pastor Cliff saying, why haven't you become like Jesus? What I'm saying is, there's been a promise that maybe you thought was a command. You thought you were supposed to be on this self-improvement track where you follow lots of rules and so become, you know, squared away. No, 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 no. I mean, do some of that. It'd be great. But, but that, that wasn't the plan. The plan was for God to come and make you from the inside out to be like him. 
to transform you by the renewing of your minds. He's starting on the very inside and working his way out so that you could become like him. Here's what it says, Romans chapter 8, 29. And those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Likeness, you know where that word comes from? It comes from the uh, stamping of coinage. Yeah, you know how, you ever notice how Abraham Lincoln looks exactly the same on every penny? Yeah, uh-huh. It's because they come out of a die. Ka-chink, 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 ka-chink. And old Abe's face gets mashed into the material so that we get Abe's face on everything that goes through the die. Yeah, that's the word that the scriptures use when, when they use image. You'd be conformed to the likeness or the image of his son. It's that, that he, he comes and he gets up against you firmly enough. Enough heat, enough pressure. And when you come out of the die, you, you're like Jesus. Friend, listen, I want to come back to the grand disappointments because they constitute heat and pressure. We keep asking him to let us out of all the bad stuff so that we can be happy. He said, what if, what if you let me take all the hard things and, and use them together for your good so that you actually become Good. Hmm. Romans 8 says that you can expect God to work for your good. You can expect Him to make you like Jesus at the level of your character. He also says, get this, I know this, uh, this is something you'd, I don't know, expect Joel Osteen to preach maybe. And make you a winner. That's what it says. I, I read it there. Romans 8, chapter 37 says, one translation says, more than conquerors. The one that I read to you said something like, overwhelmingly victorious. He'll make you a winner. The truth is that you can expect God to get involved in the, the stuff of your life, all of it, and that when he does, he has a plan. And the plan is to help you become a winner over many of those challenges. See, if you learn to look to him and ask for his help and take the help that he offers, it's a leg up, folks. It really is. When God's on your team, there's a good chance you're going to win. Right? You learn, you learn to, to lean up against him enough that you, that, that you hear what he has to say and you recognize thoughts as coming from him and you use those things to, to fight the battles that you fight in this life, you will find that it is an unfair advantage over all the poor, spiritually ignorant folks in this world. Not that we're preying on them. It's just that there's victory for us. But you notice I said most things, didn't you? And that bothered you. Because the promise isn't that you'll win over difficult things all the time. Sometimes you're going to win in difficult things. It means he's going to leave you in a hard spot. He's going to leave you in the pressure. It means that the end result isn't going to go exactly the way that you had wanted. There will be some disappointments in your life. But if you are with him in the middle of the mess, he says, I'll either make you victorious over it or I will make you victorious in it. But always, 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 always winners more than conquerors. Accusations, he said, people accuse you? That's ridiculous. It isn't going to stand. Is it Trevor? Accusations, no problems. Needs, you'll meet them. Actual danger, you'll be on the scene. You can expect God to make you a winner in this life.
You can. Last thing and I'll be done. You can expect, Romans 8 says, that God will never let go of you. He will never let go of you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from him and from his love. He doesn't call you his child and then have you slip through his grip. You're not going to run through his fingers like sand. Oh, where, where'd she go? The scriptures say that God, when he lays his hands on you, he gets a hold of you. And it's forever kind of thing. It means that no matter hard, how hard it gets, he's not going to let go. Now, I know, listen, I know I'm an Nazarene, okay? Just, I, I know that. Um, we don't need to have a big doctrinal discussion afterwards. But um, I, I promise I'm, I, I passed all the tests to get to be a Nazarene pastor, okay? But I'm telling you, um, listen, I think you can give your salvation away. If you want to go and, um, you know, uh, scream and yell in the face of God and tell him to pack sand and leave you alone, I think he'll probably do it. But I don't think you have to worry about losing your salvation because somehow you slipped through the fingers of God. Listen, when God gets a hold of his children, he gets a real good hold. And he intends to hold on to you forever. And it is impossible to slip from his grasp, okay? We'll talk some more about it in the future. Don't panic. I promise I'm still Nazarene. You can call the DS today if you want. I'll I'll tell him the, the same thing, okay? He promised he'll hold on to you. So you haven't been all that faithful lately? Guess what? God's still got a hold of you. You've been making excuses your whole life about why X sin is in your life? Guess what? God's still got a hold of you. Some relationships in your life not at all going the way you want like right now? Guess what? God still has a hold of you. And if he is close enough to get a hold of you, then he's probably close enough that he's actually involved in the situation. You may not be able to see him working, but I'm telling you, he's got a hold of you. If you've ever allowed him to get a hold of you, he will never let go of you. Nothing can separate us. Listen, if he, if he works all things together for our good and all means, then if nothing can separate us, then nothing means nothing. Nothing can separate us. Do you feel the power of that today? Not even your stony, cold feelings. Not your doubts. Not your disappointment. You can look God in the eye and say, this is not at all going like I had hoped. I thought you said, I'm disappointed. And he says, I can deal with that. i got to hold it, you. Let's walk this thing out together. Disappointment with God always comes from a lack of trust, lack of faith in in my life, okay? I don't know about yours, in mine. Disappointment with God always comes from a lack of faith, meaning this, when I trust me more than I do God, when I trust that I know the definition of good better than God does. So what I start doing is I start concocting this, this set of circumstances for my life that is good, I mean, by the authority of Cliff, and God says, yeah, I, don't, I, I never really understood the authority of Cliff. You don't seem to get it, son. But I'm all wise, and I'm all good, and I'm all loving, and I'm all patient, and I'm all powerful. 
Could we entertain the possibility of my dream for you for a moment? And at the moment that I start to think, maybe God knows what he's talking about. Maybe God's wiser than me. Maybe God's better than me. And I start to latch on to his dream. Disappointment can slip away. And I can experience the peace that all those Christmas carols sing about. So my question for you this morning is, are you disappointed with God? I've been disappointed with God a time or 37. I've held on to some of those disappointments for years without acknowledging them or admitting to myself or to God that I was disappointed with him. But, but one day, God brought me to the place where I just had to face him. It was not pleasant. And when I did, God helped me to see that I was disappointed with him because I didn't get what I wanted. He then said, Cliff, you have a hard time trusting me because you don't really try to trust me. You just try to get me to do what you want. You don't try to trust my heart. And I'll always do what's good for you. That's why you're often disappointed. It's because I've promised to do what I know is best, and you keep trying to talk me into doing what you think is best. As we look toward Christmas, it's with a sense of expectation Those who had great expectations at the first coming of Jesus were disappointed because they didn't really care what God wanted. They wanted what they wanted. Let's start our journey toward Christmas together by asking our God to help us really see our expectations for what they are. Then there's really just one big question. Will you surrender your great expectations? Maybe your grand disappointments, to the God who can be trusted with your future. If so, he promises to work the good and the bad and the in-between things in life into something good for you, and he promises to use that process to make you like Jesus, genuinely good and able to make a difference in your world. He'll then make you a winner, sometimes over the hard stuff and sometimes in it, but always a winner, and he promises that through all of that, he will never let go of you, no matter what. It means he will be all in with you. And if that's what your heart really wants... And why don't you talk to God about your great expectations today? I want to ask the worship team to come. I want to ask, uh, why don't you all stand with us today? We're going we're gonna to sing a song that, that really kind of focuses on the last of the great expectations. It's that, it's that God never lets go of us. And maybe that's really what you need to be most convinced of today before you'll You'll ever start talking to him, being honest with him about your disappointment with him. Lord, we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed because um, we just want to shut out everything else for a moment and have a conversation with you. It's a hard conversation to have. It's tough enough when, when I have to go talk to some human being and tell them, yeah, I didn't like what you did. I'm disappointed with, with you. Lord, I bet I have some brothers and sisters here today are thinking, I can't say that to God. Lord, would you assure them that you already know and you still have not let go of them?
and that you're not going to. Lord, we bring these uh, great expectations of ours to you. I want you to ask you to, uh, I guess, evaluate them first. Maybe you guided our dreams in the past, and we've, we've, we're part of it. Would you just show us what your dream is and, and which part of ours you just wouldn't have anything to do with? Would you help us to really believe that your heart is good? To really believe that you're wiser than we are? I guess what I'm asking is, would you help us to, in our disappointment, to realize that we need to humble ourselves today? And let you be the God, let you be the dreamer, let you be grand fixer. I'm asking you, Lord, my life, for the collective life of this congregation, would you begin to build your dreams for me, for us, into reality? I ask in Jesus' name.